John chapter 3. Foolish question. Ask it for those of my lifetime. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I wonder if we realize how much verses 1 through 15 of John chapter 3 inform how we are to understand John 3.16. And next week we're going to dive into this beautiful text that, that so many know and discuss and talk about it when we look at John, I believe it's 16 through 18 next week. But I want you to understand that this is where the argument is moving us to. And, and thus everything that leads up before it, especially verses 1 through 15, kind of lay the foundation for us to understand verse 16 properly. And we looked at, at verses 1 through 6 last week, and uh, this week we're going to move right through verse 15, but I, I want to read it uh, in its entirety together. So follow with me, if you would, in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How could this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. But everyone who believes in him may have eternal Here we have this interaction with Jesus and this, this Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a guy that, that the gospel has just introduced us to, as we looked at last week. And just to remind you, this is a person, a Pharisee, was someone who was trained in the law of God and someone who was committed to obeying God in every way they could. So much so that they, they made up new rules so that they could obey God more. Like, these are the people... You know these people, and some of you may be these people, and I'm sorry for you, but those people who can't accept an A, you know, they have to get an A+. Plus. Like, for some reason, like, that's really important to them. They got it. An A is not enough. I need that A+. Plus. And they get angry if they don't get it. That's a Pharisee. That's the way they were, but, but about obeying God, which is a good desire. They took it to a bad place, but it was a good thought, at least. 
person who longed to obey God, and primarily because that's the only way they could figure out how to get to heaven, because sinners can't be in heaven. Sinners can't have eternal life. God can't be just and bless sinners. Sin must be paid for. So, so then the thought has to be, okay, well, how then do I get to heaven? I, it must be by good works. I have to fix myself. I have to make myself better. I have to be disciplined. And I'll offer a couple sacrifices to take care of the big sins, but everything else I need to eradicate from my life, I expect to get to heaven. This was the prevailing thought. Unfortunately, it's still a prevailing thought today. It's amazing how many people have told me over my time in ministry how they just, they just got a couple things they got to straighten out and then they'll come to church. Once I make myself good enough, then I'll come to God. Once I've kicked down the door to heaven, then I'll accept his invitation to come. Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and there's this anticipation of, what are you here for? He says what he knows. He says, we we know that you have come from God because you perform signs that no one could do unless they were from God. And so the, the, the picture is, I know you're from God, but what's, what's your role? What's your mission? And Jesus says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus' mission was to present the gospel. Jesus' mission was to die for our sins so that we may have life, so that we may be reborn. And so even though Nicodemus doesn't explicitly ask about salvation, Jesus answers the important question about salvation and answers Nicodemus' question of, what's your mission? Why are you here? Jesus says you must be born again. There's no exception. There's no other way. Notice that Nicodemus has come to Jesus at this point with honor and with respect, but that did not save him. happen for him to see the kingdom of God. And then Nicodemus gets a little confused, and he says, well, what? I, 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 that doesn't make sense to me. I don't, I don't get it. And, and also this, this idea, this, this concept that, that this is impossible. And, and the point of impossibility is laced throughout this entire text that we've looked at last week and this week. This idea that I, I know that you've come from God because nobody, nobody can do these things unless they're from Jesus saying, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can this possibly be? In other words, the same idea, we're talking about an impossibility. I know, I know I'm not good enough. That's why I'm here. I've tried to obey the law, and it hasn't brought me peace, and it, it hasn't brought me eternity. Jesus answers again in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and spirit gives birth to spirit. We discussed last week how this idea of being born of water and spirit is just a, a parallel with being born again. And as he says later in verse 8, being born of the spirit. It's the same way of, of saying the same thing. emphasizing that it is impossible. 
impossibility for you to get to heaven. It's impossible for you to fix your life enough to please God. That leads us to where we're going to look this morning. Let me pray. Father God, I ask that you would give us great wisdom as we dive into your word. God, I ask that you would give us humility to accept it as it is. Father, that we would trust your wisdom so that we may experience new birth, so that we may be made new in spirit, so that we can obey you, so that we can walk with you, so that we can enjoy salvation. Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom. Amen. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's step through this text together, starting with verses 7 and 8. It says this, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound and you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now again, just to reiterate that point that we made a few seconds ago, Jesus says in verse 3 that you must be born again. And then in verse 5, he says you must be born of water and spirit. And then in verse 7, he says, you must not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. And then in verse 8, he says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's saying the same thing, but using slightly different terms. But he's speaking of this idea of a new birth. He says, you should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. Now, being born again has been the theme of this entire section. Remember, the context here is the impossible. It's impossible to see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, or as it it is here, you must be born again. Notice that it doesn't say you will be born again. He doesn't say if you see the kingdom of God, you will be born again. That would imply that everyone will eventually see the kingdom of God. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, you must be born again. Which stresses that there is but one way to see and enter the kingdom of God, to enter heaven. The one way is being born again, which as we noted last week, is impossible for anyone to accomplish on their own. Which John prepared us for, we looked at last week, look at chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. I don't know how much you think that you played into the decision for you to be born, but it wasn't much. Listen to that argument. But we 
talk about being born physically. Why would we think that we're the primary impetus for us to be born again spiritually? Jesus is stressing again that not everyone will see the kingdom of God. That is a very serious thing. This is why the gospel is so important to be proclaimed and to be believed. Because not everyone will get to heaven. Not everyone will be saved. No one is able to get into heaven. No matter who they are, no matter how much they work, even this Pharisee, who would have been cleaner than we are, would have been more upright than we are, would have followed all of the extra rules that we have a tendency in the church to make that people have to follow to be good in our impression. He would have been the best. And even he would not be able to get to heaven unless he was born of God. Born again. And notice that Jesus expected that Nicodemus would get this. There's nothing explicitly stated in the Old Testament that states that we must be born again or born from above before we can see the kingdom of God. But there are lots of clear implications of this fact, including the fact that everyone dies, which is a reminder that we are all sinners, where the very sacrificial system points to the need of new birth because it never ended. There was never enough sacrifice. Next, Jesus stresses that being born again is not something accomplished by the will or power of man, but by God's Spirit. He says in verse 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. Although it is impossible for man or a person on their own to be born again, it is possible for the Spirit of God. But this action is not done in our of the new birth is like the wind. It blows wherever it pleases. There's a lot of solar farms going on. And one of, one of the really sad things is, is that we, we, can, we can utilize the wind and we can try to, try to take advantage of the wind, but we, we can't make it blow the way we want it to and when we want it to. Have you ever been, been sailing? I, I've found that I'm horrible at sailing, but I've also found that nobody else is perfect at it. Because you can't dictate what the wind's going to do. You have to adjust to the wind. The wind doesn't adjust to you. And that's the picture here. This idea of, of the, the sovereignty of God. You know the wind has been there because you hear it. Its reality is known because of its consequences, but it is not controlled by you or by me. Here Jesus says, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And the point is simply that the Spirit is the power that brings about the impossible, the new birth. And it is a power that is not controlled by you or by me. It is not a physical power, it is a spiritual power. Just as the new birth is a spiritual birth. Look then at verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asks. This is the last question that Nicodemus gives 
because this question echoes his earlier question in verse 4, and it's connected with the theme of this entire section. Again, the impossible. In verse 2, Nicodemus says, no one can do these things. Verse 3, we're reminded, he cannot enter the kingdom of God unless. Verse 4, how can he? Verse 5, he cannot. And now in verse 9, how? It's this repeated emphasis of, of the impossible. Are, are we just speaking in theory, Jesus, or is there some practical application here? Is this just high-in-the-sky thought? Is this true? Nicodemus lived in a world where the only way to get to heaven was to make yourself right with God through the sacrifices of your acts of obedience, through willpower, this was the only means by which anyone could be saved. This is what was taught. But it never worked. There was never peace. But yet people just kept trying because to admit that they were not able to fix themselves was just too hard. Listen to what Martin Luther says in writing about this verse. He said, There is no worse obstacle us than our own pride. For we always want to be wiser than is proper. And therefore we reject with devilish pride everything that is not explained to our reason. As if it were fair to limit God's infinite power to our poor capacity. We may indeed inquire into the manner and reason of God's works to a certain extent with sobriety and reverence but Nicodemus rejects it as a fable with the objection that he does not think it's possible. Nicodemus is saying, I don't see how that works, and thus it can't be true. Remember I took an automotive class when I was in high school because people kept making fun of me uh, because I couldn't do so, yeah, I've learned a few things, but I took this class, and he started talking about this class, and I, I felt like I was in a foreign language class. Like, I had no idea. I knew he was speaking English, but I didn't know any of these words. I didn't understand how any of it fit together. It made no sense to me at all. And for the most part, it still doesn't make sense to me. That doesn't stop me from getting in a car and going somewhere. I know it works. I couldn't explain it or fix it, but I know it works. Sometimes the same is the gospel. We may, we may not be able to understand the whole thing, but it's true. And the question is not can you wrap your mind around it? Can you wrap your mind around the the wisdom of God. The question is, do you believe it's true? Will you trust that God does not have to step down from his throne to explain it to you in simple enough terms that you can wrap your mind around? Practically speaking, it's true. Will you humble yourself enough to acknowledge that he knows more than you? Many things that are impossible for us. The impossible.
possibilities are not just emphasized in John. In Mark chapter 10, if you want to turn with me, you, you can, but in Mark 10, 24, in Mark 10, 24, we have Jesus who has just talked to the, to the rich ruler and, and he's turned him away, told him he needs to sell everything and, and give it to the poor and come and follow me. In verse, starting in verse 22, it says, After this, read this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. And here's why they were amazed. Because the, the religiously pure, the, the rich, the blessed, these are the people who must be honored by God. These are the people who have it together. If the rich can't get into heaven, what hope is there for the poor? If you could take it a variety of ways, if the, if the educated can't figure out the gospel, what hope is there for the uneducated to figure out the gospel? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? How is this possible? Because Jesus is not saying, Listen, God is has a way like Rick Moranis to shrink things. And he can shrink this candle so it fits through the eye of a needle. That's not the point. The point is that it's impossible. for us to get a camel through the eye of a needle. But they say wisely, since this is impossible, what, what's the point? Who then could possibly be saved? If it's not the rich, if it's not the religious, if it's not the, those who have a great lineage, who then is possibly going to be saved? Jesus acknowledges the fact that they get it in verse 27. He said, he looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible.
understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? He says, you are, you are Israel's teacher. Pharisee could not understand the gospel, and how could he possibly hope to believe? He says, very truly I tell you. Here again, for the third time, Jesus uses the double emphasis, the word that means amen or truly, and he says it twice. Amen, amen, truly, truly, or here, very truly, the point being, hey, listen, I got something to tell you that's really important. We speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. And again, the reason that Nicodemus is challenging this testimony is because it doesn't make sense to him. And a lot of people wonder why Jesus uses the we here instead of saying I, as he does in the next verse, in the next sentence. It seems likely that Jesus here is connecting himself with the Old Testament prophets who spoke of his coming and hinted at the new birth. Either way, there's a double, again, I should say, a double emphasis here. What is known and what is seen is meant basically to convey the same idea. That Jesus is speaking authoritatively about absolute truth. Point is that Jesus is not guessing about eternal life. He's not saying, you know, I think. Here's how you think of it. Jesus is not guessing. Jesus is not saying things that he does not know or comprehend. He has a perspective and insight that is special, and yet people do not listen to him. Just as people did not listen to the prophets who came before him, just as people did not truly listen to John the Baptist. The point is that the gospel is not human wisdom, but God's wisdom. In other words, you're not going to get all of his plans, because his wisdom is beyond yours. Will you trust him? 1 Corinthians 1 18 speaks of this, this emphasis, and it says this, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, or sorry, for since in the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those believe. In verse 20, or 12, it continues, he says, I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, there's a lot of debate and a lot of discussion as to what Jesus means here by earthly things. And the point seems to be that the new birth happens here on earth. It's not something that happens after we die. It happens here, and in that sense, it is earthly. 
point seems to be that Jesus cannot speak about eternity. He's saying, if, if you don't get this part of it, I, I can't explain to you the new heavens and the new earth. has already noted that Jesus was a man sent from God. But yet, Nicodemus wouldn't put down his pride enough to believe him when he said this stuff. Verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of God. And here again, the point is the emphasis of the special revelation that only Jesus God's Son, the promised Messiah, can give. Remember chapter 1, verse 1 in John. In chapter 1, verse 1, we're reminded of who Jesus is, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus has always been God. Jesus has a perspective that we don't have. He has insight that we don't have. I want you to imagine for a moment, all of you who have had kids, who've tried to explain to your kids why they can't do something. Especially when it's about something that not only they really want, but they don't understand that if they don't have it now, it, it's better for them. Sometimes my, my daughter really wants to carry Most of the time, because you know, their products are really good, those classes are really cheap. But, um, my daughter really, really, especially at night, like, I, I want nice and cheese. Okay? Can I have uh, a cookie or some cake or some, some kind of snack? And we know, we understand that if she does, she's going to have a horrible night. But she doesn't get that still. But yet, trying to explain to her, there comes a point where we just have to say, you got to parent understands that conversation and that, and that dilemma of trying to help the child understand and then coming to a point of just saying, you know what, at this stage I can't explain it to you any other way than just to say that this is for your good. I want to talk to you. I have a perspective that you don't have. As a parent, we get that. emphasizing the reality that he alone is to be trusted. He alone has the, the words of life. Now the point here is not that no one has ever gone into heaven. That's not the point of this, of this verse. Consider Elijah just as an example of 2 Kings 2.11. It says, As they, meaning Elijah and Elisha, were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. So just because of that text, we know that Jesus is not saying no one has ever gone up into heaven. That's not his point. His point is that no one has come from heaven to show you the way. Jesus is the only one who is able to answer this all-important question. How can someone get to heaven? 
Jesus alone can explain that. Jesus alone can speak to that. He has the authority and the insight to answer that question. And so even if we don't fully understand his answer, we are called to listen and submit to it. To finish this section today, Jesus gives an illustration for Nicodemus and drunk. This illustration has been easier to swallow and easier to understand, but it still makes the same point as Jesus has been making. It still emphasizes the same thing that has to be understood in connection with what we've been talking about. That to see or enter the kingdom of God or of heaven, one must be born again. On our own, this may be impossible. But how then can anyone be saved? Jesus finishes this section in verse 14 and 15. Just, just as Moses lifted up, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. With this illustration, Jesus takes Nicodemus back to the Old Testament. I want to encourage you to turn to Numbers 21. It's up in the corner of the, of the screen there. I want to encourage you to go there with me. But in Numbers 21, we have the, the, the picture or the event that Jesus is connecting with what he's been talking about. Here Israel has, has been freed from Egypt. They have been provided with manna. They have been uh, protected. They have been blessed. They have been provided water. They have been provided what they need. Numbers 21, 4 through 9, it says this. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. People came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. We prayed that the Lord would take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed to the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a brown snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. I love this account in part because it's odd. But I love the fact that the Israelites, uh, I shouldn't say I love it, it just, I guess it helps me to be gracious to myself. These people have been given water, they've been given food, and Yet they come to God and say, there's no water, and there's no food, and by the way, we hate this food. It's the same word used. There's not two different words there. They're just complaining. They're just mumbling about the salvation that God has given them, about, about freeing them from slavery. This is not the way they think it should go. Because they think that their wisdom 
his provision of food and leadership. And so God sends poisonous snakes into the camp. And many die. Then the people realize their sin against God, and they ask Moses' forgiveness, and, and for him to pray for the Lord's forgiveness on their behalf, which he did. But have you ever taken some time to think about how God chooses to give them deliverance? God could have caused the snakes just to vanish, right? He could have caused the snakes to leave just as he caused them to come into the camp. But he didn't. He could have provided an antidote for Moses. But he didn't. He could have caused the snakes to no longer produce venom. But he didn't. Instead, as a means to help us and to help Nicodemus to understand Jesus' mission in the gospel, help us to know how someone can enter the kingdom of God he had Moses make a, a bronze snake, which is just a simple molded snake replica. And he was to, to place it on a pole in the middle of camp and told people that if they were bit, if they looked at this snake, they will live. Now, although the word faith or believe is not used, it's clearly implied. Notice that in Numbers it says that when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The implication there is that not everyone looked. But there were still some who were bitten who didn't look. And frankly, there's part of me that can't blame them. If, if I was bit by a snake and someone said, Hey, if you hop on your left foot three times and pat your head twice and stick your finger in your nose, you'll be fine. I would say no. Right? This, this seems like an odd request. Look to this bronze snake on a pole in the middle of camp and the poison won't kill you. Well, that doesn't seem to make sense logically to us. Because it didn't fit their logic. They allowed their pride to lead them to their death. The picture here is striking. Just as Moses put this replica on a pole so that all who looked to it would be saved from poison, so Jesus. is but the one way to heaven. And it's not a way that we can, can carve out on our own. Jesus alone is the only way. 
came as a perfect sacrifice so that he could pay our debt so that all who look to him in faith and not of ourselves but as a gift from God would be saved, would be forgiven, would be born again from above. The question I guess just still remains. Do you believe? Friends, do you think that you can get your way into heaven through your good works, through your best efforts? Know that the gospel is unequivocal about this. That Jesus is unequivocal about this. You cannot. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter if you fall sin, fall short a little bit or a lot. All of us are sinners. We do not deserve God's favor and mercy. We will not on our own experience heaven in any way, shape, or form. But Jesus came. is coming. God promised that. Spring is coming. Friends, we are lost. 
my salvation. It's just I love it so much. I love it. outside or how bad it is here. When you look to the Word and believe what Jesus has said, you will stay there. Only in that will you find that you are alive in Christ. If life, love, kindness, truth, Lord, I thank you so much. that you did not send your only son into this world to die as one option so that we may get to heaven, but as our only option, our only hope. God, that you must believe in him to willingly change and take our place and die for our sins that we would have life. God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that for the rest of us, Lord, that those who know you, that we would be reminded again of the graciousness of our salvation and the fullness of Christ. To know that you have started a work in us and you will complete it. For although you have fully redeemed and, and remade our souls, that you are remaking the rest of us as well. Crafting us to be more like Christ with each new day, each new trial, and each new moment. God, give us the faith to endure. Trust that your word is true. Consequences of that 